Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Tuesday, November the 1st, 2022. It is currently 1.17 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central Studios located right here in Abilene, Texas. And it is from this studio that sometimes I attempt to give a very unorthodox approach to certain subjects. I I have a tendency to try to, to say, okay, here's how everyone typically approaches this subject. This is basically what everyone else says. I'm just going to say the same thing, just maybe in a slightly different way. No, 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 no. I typically go, here's what most people say about this subject. I'm going to find the most unorthodox out of the box, I hate that phrase since it's such a cliche, I'm going to try to find the, uh, as, I'm going to come from it as far out and left field as I can, because I think there needs to be a voice that sometimes offers a different perspective, right? If you listen to 15 Christian podcasts and everyone just says the same thing about the same subjects, just in a slightly different way, I, that, that, no, there's got to be someone who are like, hey, 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 everyone over there, they're, they're talking about this subject this way. We're going to look at it completely different. Now, I'm glad that I do that. I am. I am. I am glad that I do. I'm glad the Theology Central podcast, you can go, I don't ever, I don't know if I agree with him, but he he always looks at things in a, in a, in a very different way that at least makes me stop and think. So I appreciate that. I'm hoping that at least you give me I'm hoping at least that occurs in the minds of the people who listen. A lot of people just get frustrated and irritated because they just want to hear, well, what everyone else is saying, which I don't, I don't understand that, but okay. But I do know this. When you attempt to give a very unorthodox approach to things, not everyone, you hope everyone's, someone's going to appreciate it, but the reality is not everyone's going to like it. Not everyone's going to understand. And let's also be just very honest Sometimes the unorthodox approach doesn't really, sometimes maybe it doesn't really work as well as you think that it should. Or, or maybe you just, I, I don't know. Just there are times when I'm done, I'm like, ah, I, I don't know if people really understood what I was trying to say. I don't know if I was clear. I, I, I don't know. And then sometimes the emails clearly indicate that people did not understand so that, I guess that's just the risk you take. If, if you're going to take the unorthodox approach, it's risky. Sometimes maybe it will be successful. Sometimes it will be a failure. Sometimes you will be understood. Many times you will be misunderstood. So at the risk of being misunderstood, we're once again going to turn to the very unpleasant, horrific subject there's a story here, but we're going to return to the horrific, unpleasant subject of women, abuse, submission, and how all of that plays out inside the church. All right, women being abused in the church, yet you got this teaching of submission. How does all of that work together? you got churches that don't handle abuse situations, not even in line with the law, much less what you would hope would be a biblical approach. And it's, it's not a pleasant subject. It's not a pleasant story to talk about. And the whole reason we're discussing this is because of a story. That's why I kept trying to use the word story. The reason uh, we're talking about this is because of an unpleasant story 
That was published on October the 27th, 2022 at 5.49 p.m. I believe it was Central Daylight Time. I I mean, to get as specific as I can. This uh, report was published at julieroys.com, the Roy's report. Whether you agree with her, whether you disagree with her, that's not really relevant to this subject. I'm just letting you know where the story can be found. You can go there and find it for yourself. And in the story, lots of accusations are made, and a lot of things are associated. A lot of the story is associated with Grace Community Church and John MacArthur. Now, I've got to state this in this in this episode like I've done in the previous parts. My goal is not to sit there and look at MacArthur or look at Grace Community Church and say anything about them. My thing is to take this story and say, okay, this this is something that happened involving Grace Community Church John MacArthur, which once again demonstrates conservative churches are not exempt from these issues, where you have abuse happening with a within a family inside a, a, a conservative Christian church, Bible-believing church, you still have domestic abuse, child abuse. Uh, you have horrible things taking place inside a church. And, and I know many Christians have this mentality that when we all become Christians, everything's wonderful and great and nobody really sins anymore. But the reality is every church is made up of sinners, broken sinners. And the horrible sins that we find in the culture are happening inside the church because we remain sinners. We're not saved by any righteousness that we do. We're saved by an imputed righteousness, and we maintain a sinful nature. I do not know why the church wants to live in some make-believe land, but the reality is everyone in your church and my church are sinners. And guess what happens in their families? Sin occurs of all kinds. So abuse and horrible things happen inside very conservative churches, whether people want to acknowledge it or not. And it seems like in many cases the church, church's approach is more like let's not talk about it and let's not deal with it because we've got to put forth the image that everyone in here is perfect instead of putting forth the reality that, hey, everyone here is a sinner, right? Hey, attention to everyone in the community. Our church is filled with sinners, and we can always use one more. So come on, like, like instead of pretending that we're so righteous and godly and that the world is the bad people and we're the good people, how about we just acknowledge we're the forgiven people, but we're just as sinful. And you say, well, that's ridiculous. It's just the truth. 2,000 years of church history has proven it. So I don't want to get into an argument about MacArthur or Grace Community Church. I wanted us to get to the deeper issues of women and abuse and submission and how all of this plays out. So what we're doing is we're working through the article, and I've given you, I think, like four things we're going to look at, but in this episode, we're going to add a new one to it because one of our listeners brought this up yesterday after I did the live broadcast. They brought this up, and I was like, that's going to become a podcast episode, and well, we're going we're gonna to add it to this series because it's very much relates, all right? So let's go back to the story. I'll, I'll get us all set up. And then we're going to hopefully engage in a very, it's going to be a controversial subject. It's going to be controversial. And again, I don't know if everyone's going to understand, but I'm going to do my very best. Here we go. Here's the original story headline. Exclusive. Woman says John MacArthur's church taught her to stay with abusive husband. Now, I'm getting ready to read some things. It's not suitable for children. Once again, giving you that heads up, all right? We're dealing with some very serious and and dark subjects here. Here we go. 
The, the story begins this way. Krista believed it was God's will that she marry her husband. She believed that it was God's will that she married her husband. She believed it was his will for her to deny herself, to endure the pain each time her husband reportedly raped her mere hours after giving birth, to not intervene when her seven children cried out for mercy as her husband reportedly beat them. Every day when the kids are screaming in pain, I'm de- defying every natural thing as a mother to stand up for the uh, to stand up for the doctrine that I was taught, she recalled. Now, the story goes on and on and on. It's horrific, it's horrible. People, everyone, of course, will take sides, but they're, 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 just the whole thing is messed up. But as we work through the story, certain issues, I, I want to go back to like, my, my thing is this. Way too many women find themselves in so-called Christian marriages, attending a so-called Christian church, and they begin to suffer abuse or watch their children be abused. Sometimes it's physical, sometimes it's sexual. In many cases, the women based off the teaching that they have received, handle it in a way that in many cases leads to the abuse continuing, things getting worse and worse and worse. And in many cases, they reach out to the church for help. And instead of getting help, the church seems to be more interested not in helping the woman, but making sure she doesn't leave her husband and she stays right there, even if that leaves her and her children in serious danger. So what I've decided to do is go all the way back before they're married, before they're married. How do women end up in these horrible situations and, 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 and not so much how they end up in these situations, but how do they end up thinking in such a way that puts them at such, in such danger and such great risk? All right. And so the first thing we talked about in the last episode was this whole thing that that Krista says right here at the beginning. I believed it was God's will that I marry my husband. That whole concept, it's taught in churches all across the United States of America that before you get married, you've got to determine that's God's will. God has one person out there for you, and you've got to determine that that's the person God is telling you to marry. So you come, and and there's all kinds of different ways you're supposed to do this. Some people, it's like you listen to some inner voice, you look for this, you look for that, and then you're like, that is God's will. And I've tried to at least establish the possible unintended consequences of that thinking, because now here's a woman in a marriage, horrible things are happening, horrible, and like in this case, she's being raped, her children are being beaten. But she's like, hey, it was God's will that I married this person. Well, if it was God's will that I marry this person, well, then how do I, can I say anything? Can I do anything? I mean, God told me to marry this person. If God told me to marry this person, he had to know what was going to happen. He had to know that I was going to be beat. He had to know I was going to be raped. He had to know that my children were going to be beat. So, I mean, what do I do? It has to be God's will. He's the one who told me to marry this person. So I tried to challenge this a little bit and say that I think we've over-spiritualized the whole finding a spouse thing, that we've almost turned it into uh, a, a really dangerous situation. Can I put it this way? Some dangerous 
some dangerous consequences can arise from it. So here's what I tried to establish. If you go to the Bible, basically the only rule you really have is do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. You make sure the person is a believer. Then you look for the basic things you look for in marriage, compatibility, this and that. Just what, what do we have in common? What do we not have in common? Our likes, our, our values, our ideologies, our, our love for one another. You look for all of these things. But other than that, the, what you, so what we should say is, I am not, I, the, this marriage meets the biblical standard is I'm marrying a believer and, and all these other things seem, and I'm not going to go in saying, oh, I think this is, this is the one person God picked out for me. This, this is God's will. I, I, I think that you could say that you are marrying within God's will because God's will is that you marry a fellow believer. Now, some people emailed me and say, well, yeah, yeah, how do you know if they're a believer? Look. Uh, you can go with their profession of faith. Yes, you want to look at their spiritual life. Yes, you want to look at all of those things. But sadly, sometimes people can play the spiritual game until they get married, and then the spiritual game game goes out the window. And a lot of times men do this. They can pretend to be like they're going to be the next John Piper, and then they get married, and they turn out to be the next, you know, Antichrist. And you're like, what just happened? Because they, they play the big spiritual game to get the girl, and then once they get the girl— they have no interest in being the spiritual leader. They don't talk doctrine. They don't talk theology. They don't do anything. And it, it can be really sad. So there's no easy answer in how to do that. Obviously, you just have to, hopefully, there's sincerity there. But I think it, it, it puts the per, uh, woman in, in, in a position, and I'm speaking more for the w- women being abused because that's what this story is about. It puts the woman then in a position if she goes into it saying, hey, I'm marrying within God's will because this person it, it claims to be a believer. I'm a believer. I'm not being unequally yoked. All right. Uh, all these other things seem to check. I don't see any red flags. I don't see any warning signs. Okay. Then the woman is not in a position. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This this was God's will. This is God's will. And possibly be unwilling to say or do anything when everything is falling apart. Right now, I know we just spent a lot of time reviewing that, but I just want to make sure everyone understands what I was trying to do. But this raises another question. So, so there is we just need to oh, we need to stop over spiritualizing the whole thing so that we have a more realistic approach. I'm marrying someone because they profess to be a believer. I profess to be a believer. We seem to both care about the things of God. We have these other things in common, and we're getting married, and we're not violating scripture on and getting married because we're not being unequally yoked. That that's that 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 just creates a different psychological feeling towards it. Then wait a minute, this is God's will. Now there's another issue that we had not brought up, but one of the listeners brought up. What about wedding vows? What about traditional wedding vows? Specifically, the traditional wedding vows that women make in many conservative churches. We haven't even got into submission in marriage yet, right? We're, we, we've, we've looked at trying to figure out who the spouse is supposed to be and not turning that into some spiritual thing that leads to a psychological way of thinking that could put you in danger. Now we got to talk about those vows. We have to talk about the vows. Here's from an article. To love, cherish, and obey 
the wedded way to love, cherish, and obey the wedded way. Many, probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Christian women have stood at an altar in front of a pastor and made a vow supposedly to God and to those witnesses who were present, right? They've made a vow to God and they make a vow to God to obey their husband. It goes something like this. I, then the bride states her name, take thee, she states her husband-to-be's name, and she says this, to be my wedded husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love, cherish, and obey till death do us part according to God's holy law. Wow. Now remember, that's a vow that is being made to God. That's a promise being made to God. That promise at that in that moment in that promise, you're not there, you're not, you're not making any, you're not stating any exemptions. You're saying till death do us part, that you are going to love, cherish, and obey. Those, the, the words there are, be, now I know that it, what's sad is that many Christians, these are Christians who stand there supposedly making this vow to God. They just take it as some kind of like romantic gesture that it's just the way, no, you're making a vow to the eternal, holy God, creator of all things that is beyond frightening. You're making a promise. You're making a vow to God. Now, now, let's just be honest. Just, just take those vows, right? Well, well, before we do this, just immediately don't you realize where this creates. See, if, if you start, if, if, the, if the Christian marriage concept, because we have these abuse situations that develop and the church doesn't know what to do. If you create a situation where the woman, first of all, go, okay, yes, the, God is telling me to marry that person. Like it's some kind of supernatural revelation. That's God's will. And then you tell that person that supposedly God's will, that you will obey them. How does the woman handle that psychologically when she gets into it and she's being raped or her children are being, all of a sudden it's not God's will. All of a sudden that promise she made to obey is just cast aside. It creates a situation where now you have some possible dangers. You have some unintended consequences. So what do we do with these vows? Now, I'm going to make a statement here. That's going to make me very, 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 very unpopular. People are going to accuse me of being a liberal. People are going to accuse me of being all kinds of things. Here's what I believe you should do with those wedding vows. Here they are on paper. This is what you should do with those wedding vows. You should throw them in the trash. The traditional wedding vows should be thrown away. They should be discarded. They should never be spoken of again. They are ridiculous. 
And they are, it, it, I just don't understand. I don't understand that in any way, shape, or form. Here, you're making a vow to God. And you're making a vow that in many ways, you're not ever going to fulfill in any true meaningful way. All right? I'm going to take you to be my husband, to have and to hold from this day forward. Okay? Have and hold. But it says from this day forward, which once again shows that, all right, you're making a promise that it's forever. All right? Now, that you may be able to fulfill that for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, for sickness and in health, to love and cherish. Now, it depends on how you define love. If you define love the 1 Corinthians 13 way, because in many cases within that same wedding ceremony, 1 Corinthians 13 is going to be read as the definition of love. If that's the love you're promising, you don't fulfill 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13. You fall short of that in thought, word, and deed all the time. Because God wants love not just as an external thing, but it's internal as well you're going to fall short. So you're making a vow to God that you're going to love when you know you're not going to love according to the biblical's definition of love, to God's standard of love. You're not going to do so. And you don't make any, you don't, you don't make any distinctions. And remember, you're not just saying words, you're making a promise to God. It's as if God is standing there and you're making a promise. You're not looking to your husband. You're looking to God and like, God, I promise that this is how I'm going to treat this. This is what I'm going to do in my marriage. So, so you're going to, for richer, for poor, for sickness and in health, you're going to love, cherish, cherish, and Obey. <laughs> yeah, you're going to obey. Now, once 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 you get into the marriage, right? And then fights happen and disagreements happen. All of a sudden that obedience, we start we start trying to qualify. Well, it doesn't mean obey here. It doesn't mean obey. You're well, you're gonna realize you're falling short of these continually. Now, this puts you in an awkward position if the husband is doing horrible things and you made a promise to obey. You say, well, I don't have to obey and, and horrible things. Look, it creates a, a, a great danger here. It creates a great danger. The idea that, oh, it's we have over-spiritualized it. Oh, that's God's will. And now we make these vows. I think it, it creates a situation where the church and the women end up in an abusive situation and nobody handles it in a correct way or knows how to think about it in a correct way. These vows have to go. And these vows have to go because just think about it. If we think about this logically, these are vows supposedly made to God. And in many cases, it's supposed to be made in front of the witnesses or the church. So now does the church hold those married people to those vows? Hey, I'm married. Like I'm your pastor. You made these vows to God. Now, as a church, we have to hold you to, you made public promise to God. If you're not fulfilling these, then therefore, is that grounds for church discipline? Or is it all just show? Is it all just symbolism without any substance? Is that what Christians want? I do the same thing with baby dedications. Everybody makes all these promises that nobody, that 90% of the time are never fulfilled. Does anybody hold accountable? But you're making a promise to God.
I think I think that the vows just be either they're meaningless or if taken serious, they lead to a perpetual state of guilt, failure, or it creates an, a situation where the woman doesn't know what to do because I promise to obey. I promise to obey. I made a vow to God that I will obey. I think it creates major problems. And let's just take a moment to consider what what does the Bible say about keeping your vows? Because this is what turns the vows into a whole thing. Just, Just consider. There's about 30 biblical references to vows. I think there's about 30, all right? I got one article here that says there's about 30. I think I've seen other articles that say there was less, or I think others say that there's more. You can, you can, if you would like to look that up today, find out exactly how many times the Bible makes a reference to vows. Most of them, I think, are going to be found in the Old Testament. I think everyone would agree with that. Uh, the books of Leviticus and Numbers have, have, have several references to vows in relation to offerings and sacrifices. There were dire consequences for the Israelites who broke vows, especially vows to God. So when you start going looking at some of the vows in the Bible, guess what? There are severe consequences for breaking the vow. In other words, God takes the vows seriously. Well, if God took the vows seriously in the Old Testament, does he not take the vows seriously when you stand to get ready to marry someone and you make all of these promises? Till death do us part. Till death do us part. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to love and cherish you. Richer or poor, good health, bad health, I'm here. Okay, well, what happens when people, when someone is not fulfilling their end of the vow? Do we take it that seriously? Now, when you start considering vows, you, you typically end up at a, with a very disturbing story. The story of Jephthah. And if you, that name is spelled J-E-P-H-T-H-A-H. Jephthah, all right? Jephthah. Jephthah illustrates the foolishness of making vows without understanding the consequences. Before leading the Israelites into battle against the Ammonites, Jephthah, described as a mighty man of valor, made a rash vow that he would give to the Lord whoever first came out of the door's to meet him if he returned home as the victor. When the Lord granted him victory, the one who came out to meet him was his daughter. Jephthah remembered his vow and offered her to the Lord. We read about that in Judges chapter 11, verses 29 through 40. Whether or not Jephthah should have kept the vow, we we could have that discussion somewhere else. But what the account shows is the foolishness of making a rash vow. It's the foolishness of, hey, hey, Lord, if you give me the victory, the, the first thing that comes out, I will offer it to, no, 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 that's my daughter. That's my daughter. No, 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 no. Why did I make that vow? And he paid his vow. Jephthah paid his vow, his daughter, 
And so it shows, hey, you you better think about it before you make a vow. You better not just make some rash vow. You know, better not get just get so caught up in the romanticized idea of a wedding that you've got to have these vows where you make a vow and then you have you 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 don't even think about it 5 seconds after. Jesus taught concerning vows. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, uh, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Personally, I think you the marriage should be just... Uh, do, uh, do you take this woman to be your bride? Yes. Do you take this man to be your husband? Yes. The end. That should be your vow. You, there should be no vow. No, no promises made. Do you take this person to be your spouse? Yes. Do you take this person to be? Yes. The end. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. I, I, I strongly, I strongly believe that. If, if, you know, now if you don't take them serious, like if, if it's just like, like, if it's just like playing dress up, if it's just like playing house, right? It's just, if it's just some big romantic, then by all means, make all the promises you want. It's just, all you're doing is it's, it's, it's performance art. It's like you're doing a little bit of dinner theater, right? We're going to invite all of our friends together. We're going to get dressed up. We're going to have music and it's going to be beautiful and a wonderful dress and rings. And it's all going to be, it's all, it's all show anyway. It's a big show. And no matter how big the wedding is, it doesn't guarantee anything about the success of said marriage. Okay. We spend millions of billions of dollars are spent on the whole wedding industry. But, but, and then, so yeah, if it's just all dress up and show and playtime, then by, by all means, make all the promises you want. But if you're going to take them serious, like you're supposedly making these promises and vows before God and to others, I think it would be better just to say, yes, the end. Right? I, I, I think anything else creates these problems. Psalm 15, verse 4. Psalm 15, verse 4 describes a righteous person as one who keeps an oath even when it hurts. Now, I want you to see how this can become very then detrimental. If a wife makes a vow to obey, makes no qualifications in that vow what that means or doesn't mean, now you see how she could end up in a position where if abuse is taking place or horrible things are taking place, well, I made a vow to obey and I have to keep that uh, a vow even if it hurts. They made a reference to Psalm 15.4. I could, uh, let's, let's look at it really quick. Psalm 15.4 reads, uh, in whose eyes a vile person is uh, contemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord, he that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. He that sweareth to his own hurt and change not. So you, you, in a sense, you make a vow, you keep that vow, even if it hurts, even if you suffer. That's the kind of teaching then that can lead a woman who's in a very horrible situation, like the story that we read, being raped repeatedly, children being beaten, and then, hey, hey, I made a vow to obey. 
I made an, a vow to be here till death do me. I have to stay here. And then the church comes along and says, hey, you made a vow. You made a promise. You can't. You, you've got to honor. You, even, even if it hurts, you just suffer that. And we, we've talked about this before. Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 supports this biblical principle. Oaths are binding even when spoken frivolously or privately as part of everyday conversation. A promise is a promise, and there is no loophole in God's eye to allow a person to renege on an oath. They argue that Matthew 5 basically is saying, when you make an oath, you have to keep it, period. There's no way out of it. There's no exemption clause. Now, this creates a major problem when it comes to, well, then what do you do about divorce? Because a lot of people want to throw in the exemption clause. But when you made your vow, you didn't throw in the exemption clause. You said, until death do us part. You didn't say an exemption clause. You made a vow to God. Now you can't come up, but, 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 but. they did this, this, and this, and this. And, and this scripture says, I can't. Well, wait a minute. No, no, no. You made a vow and you did not offer an exemption. So are you going to try to find a scripture as a loophole to get out of it? Or does the Bible seem to indicate that when you make a vow, you have to pay the vow? You have to keep the vow, even if, even because God is going to hold you to it. That's how pe- people typically view. Make, that's why Jesus says, don't make, don't make an oath. Don't no. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond that, it's trouble. And the reason anything beyond that is trouble is because you have a sinful nature and I have a sinful nature. So when you get married, there's going to be sin that erupts in there. There's going to be problems. Now, the the, the vows then create a situation where someone, and you hear these stories where the church is like, no, 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 look, 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 you made a vow. You made a promise. Your job is to submit. Your job is to obey. Even if it, you have to look, remember, we, we reviewed the teaching from, I think it was from Master Seminary. Uh, I don't remember the audio, all the audio, but we reviewed that teaching where basically it's like, hey, if you're an abused woman, you suffer just like a missionary suffers persecution. You're, you view yourself as a missionary in a foreign land and you're being persecuted and beaten by an ungodly husband, but you stay there and endure it. Well, the, 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 the vow is a major part of this. You don't make that vow. I'm not, I'm not saying that completely throws out what scripture has to say in regards to marriage. I'm just saying you did not make a specific promise. So Jesus was not condemning all forms of promises, contracts, or agreement. Jesus was speaking of the kind of spontaneous vows made when a person says, I cross my heart and hope to die, or I swear on a stack of Bibles, or I swear on my mother's life. Jesus warns against using those types of flippant oaths. His teaching, Matthew, uh, his teaching in Matthew 5 is not meant to discourage careful, thought-out promises such as wedding vows or a legal contract. Well, I would say it would, it would teach me that the wedding vows would be binding, so my wedding vows should simply be yes or no. That's what I think it should lead you to conclude. The principle here is clear. For Christians, be careful about making vows, either to the Lord or to one another. The fact we are prone to error in judgment means that we may make vows foolishly or out of immaturity. Further, the informal vows we make, I swear by all the angels in heaven, are completely unnecessary. Our word is our bond. 
Well, if our word is our bond, then don't make additional promises because it creates a situation where now you're, you're, you're bound by it. And again, I would just go back to the story in Judges 11, that horrible story where, where Jephthah, uh, Jep, Jephthah, if I can ever get his name correct, uh, makes this horrible vow, and next thing you know, he's offering up his daughter. Because if you make a vow, you have to pay it. If you have to make a vow, you have to keep it. This creates a whole new dimension to this idea of women, abuse, and submission. And that, and many of the stories, when you read them, that's kind of how the church is kind of like, well, you, you, you're supposed to be obey. Obey, you're supposed to submit. That, that's your job. You made the vow. You made the promise. Like, I, I didn't make that promise. I didn't make that vow. I didn't make that promise. I didn't make that vow. That was not in my wedding vows. Now, I'm not saying that gives you a loophole out of everything. I'm just saying that you now cannot be held to that because you didn't make the vow. You didn't make the promise. Now, you can say, well, God, here's still God's intent for, for marriage. I understand. God has in his, his, his will is all over Scripture, telling us do this and don't do this and do this and don't do this. And I know that this is the reality of all of those commands. I can give you three. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself and be holy as he is holy. You've never fulfilled one of those. You've fallen short of those 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And guess what? That's why you have to trust in Christ and for an imputed righteousness. Well, all the things the Bible says about marriage, guess what? People fall short of that 24 hours a day, seven days a week and thought, word, and deed by the things they do and by the things they don't do. Husbands don't love their wives as Christ loved the church. I mean, give me a break. Am I ever going to love a person as much as Christ loved the church? Nowhere close. Uh, that, that's what God calls me to do, but I'm going to fall short. The, the wife is supposed to, oh, is to submit to her husband as unto the Lord. Is she ever going to, I mean, she, her, just think about a woman giving the, that idea that she has to submit her, uh, her to her husband as unto the Lord. Just look at her submission to the Lord. It's never perfect, so her submission to her husband is going to be imperfect. All of those rules and laws condemn us and show us why we need Christ. I'm not saying we throw them out, but we have to see them as the reality is they demonstrate our failures. They demonstrate our need for Christ. Think of them. Those are law passages which reveal our failure. But we want to take those law passages and then turn them into a vow where you're making a vow to keep a law, which you're not going to keep because you're a sinner, which then places you now in greater danger because you're now violating a promise, a direct promise you made to God. And it creates a, a situation. So I say either, I, I, I just say, yes, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And that, that at least doesn't add anything else to it. And I think now when the woman goes into her marriage, if she goes into the marriage going, okay, look, I believe I'm marrying not outside of God's will because I'm marrying a professing believer. I'm a believer, they're a believer, therefore I'm not being unequally yoked. I'm not going to make some claim that God told me this is the person. I'm not going to make some claim that that's, that's why I'm getting married. And when I got married, I made no special vows or promises to God other than my yes was yes. 
and my no was no. Now, I know what God calls me to do in marriage, but I'm not going to make some special vow or promise that I'm going to keep it because I know the reality is I'm going to fall short of it, and I know the reality is he's going to fall short of it. Now, I'm not saying that that's going to completely protect the craziness that can happen in Christian marriages because, man, we've seen some horrible things. Oh, oh let, me, let me find, I'm going to go back to the, the Roy's report, that horrible story, again, that horrible story here about Krista. I mean, I'm going to just read the first part again. She believed it was God's will that she marry her husband. She believed it was his will for her to deny, to, to deny herself. She, uh, she, it was, she believed it was his will that she endure the pain every time her husband reportedly raped her mere hours after giving birth. Uh, she uh, believed it was his will to not intervene when her seven children cried out for mercy as her husband reportedly beat them. Every day when the kids are screaming in pain, I'm defying every natural thing as a mother to stand up for the doctrine that I was taught. She was trying to stand up for the doctrine instead of standing up for her children. All right. Now, the story is horrible. You can read it and read it and read it. But if you go all the way down to the comments, you read this horrible story. See if I can find it. This horrible story. Uh, someone posted this at 1.21 p.m. on October the 28th. It is a sad and shameful thing that is, ha- it is a sad and shameful thing that is happening in churches. My former pastor and abuser told me that God ordains it. If you remain faithful, he will mend your marriage. He then told me of a woman, no names, who was abused regularly by her husband, and she continued performing all her wifely duties. One night, her husband beat her and threw her out of the house. She allegedly slept on the porch. When her husband found her the next morning, he asked why she was still there. I was told that she said that she was that she was to submit to her husband. Uh, to, to, she was to submit to her husband um, as the head and cited Ephesians 6, 5 through 8. And allegedly, her husband instantly repented and asked Jesus into his heart. Suffering is biblical and brings salvation. That is basically what this person was taught, who had obviously been abused. Now, cannot verify that, but if that story is true, that is horrific. Hey, you're just, you're to get beat. Why? Well, I mean, come on, that was, it was God who told you to marry that person, right? It was God's will. Wait, you made a vow. You made vows. You made a vow to obey. You made, you made vows. So you got to stay there. It's, it's a, it's a crazy situation. And, and again, it's unintended. I think some cases, these are unintended consequences that people don't just realize some of this teaching leads to. So let me go through this again. Number one, we've got to unspiritualize. We've got to get rid of this over-spiritualizing the, the way people choose a spouse. You find someone, you fall in love with them. You have common interests, likes, 
you great friends, everything's wonderful, everything's great, there's no red flags, all right? You got to make sure, obviously, the person is a believer because you cannot be unequally yoked with an, an unbeliever. So, because you're not violating the stated will of God of marrying an unbeliever, you get married. You know, it's not some over-spiritual, oh, wait, it's a feeling. Wait, God told me. Yeah, this is good. This is the will of all, this is the person God planned for me to marry. No, you've made a choice to the best of your ability. You're a fallible person. You believe that this is the right person to marry and you're getting married. Knowing that you're a sinner and they're a sinner and knowing that there's going to be difficulties ahead. All right, that at least when you get into the marriage and it and if it does implode and abuse and horrible things start happening, you don't think, oh no, 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 no. God told me this is who I'm supposed to marry. You know you made a fallible decision. Now, what are you supposed to do in this situation? We haven't even answered that yet, right? Well, I'm not even getting to the divorce question, whether it is or isn't. I'm not here to get into that. I'm saying at least it eliminates some of that psychological bondage that I think leads to some of these horrible things happen. And then second, don't make the traditional vows. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. That doesn't add more additional bondage that can be utilized to keep a woman in a very abusive situation. And she feels like a prisoner. She feels trapped and she feels like that everything she does ends up sinful. Now, typically it's the woman who ends up in a horrible situation. In many cases, the church, and, and, and we've seen some cases, especially with Grace Community Church, the Eileen Gray, hey, she wants to leave her husband. She gets excommunicated. She gets excommunicated. The husband who beat and sexually abused the children goes to prison, and the church continues to support him, and they've never lifted her excommunication. That is a horrific story. And then the, 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 the story here with a woman who's using the name Krista that's on the Roy's report. You can read about it. It's another horrible story and another case where it appears people in the church was telling her, you know, hey, hey, cover up the abuse, and but you got to stay with your husband. I'm saying that these things are a step in trying to obliterate some of the things that lead to almost a, tra- a, a trap, almost lead to a prison. The traditional vows are are are, are uh, uh, they're just they're just a trap. And uh, well, they're, put it this way: they would be even more of a problem. They'd be even more of a burden. They would be even more dangerous if we actually took them seriously. Like, like I don't know even know what it would look like if we actually took the wedding vows seriously, right? I don't even know what it would look like. Like, like, okay, so you're marrying someone, right? Now, typically, the way I think it should work, a pastor should not marry anyone who's not a member of the church, right? If, if you're, if you're, it's a Christian wedding, it's a part of the church, right? You're, so it should be that church or local church that pastor marries you, all right? I know that that's not the way it typically works in some cases, but all right, it's the way it should work, all right? But now that that pastor stood there and watched his church members make a vow before God. And the church members witnessed that vow publicly. Now, what, what's the responsibility of the church in that situation? What's the responsibility? What, what's the responsibility everyone have, has in that situation? Do you just, but, but see, it's all just make-believe. It, it, no one actually takes it seriously. But if you took it seriously, you'd be like, well, wait a minute. 
You made that vow. So I've got to hold you to that vow. You made that vow. You made that vow. But no, 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 nobody holds anybody to the vow. And and, and then sometimes when it's abuse, then all of a sudden the vow is remembered. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? When abuse takes place, all of a sudden the vow is is remembered. I I just think that it it just sets up a horrible, it it sets up a horrible situation. That if you take it seriously, I don't even know what the consequences would be. See, personally... Whenever people want to get into the whole divorce discussion about whether divorce is allowed or whether divorce is not allowed, whenever people want to get into that whole thing, right? Um, Well, we got the exemption clause used in this gospel and others say, well, the other gospel doesn't have the exemption clause and say the one that has the exemption clause is not talking about marriage. Marriage is talking about the betrothal stage or really the engagement stage. And during the engagement stage, you can break it off if the person is found to be unfaithful. I mean, man, those arguments have been going on for 2000 years of church history. But to me, what complicates the whole divorce question becomes what vow did you make? Because the vow, if, if, you've, if we take it seriously, you made a vow that you did not make one, you did not offer one, I will, I promise to do this if you do this, right? I promise till death do us part unless you do A, B, C, and D. No, 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 no. That's left out of the vow. Well, if God takes our vow seriously and there's no loophole, loophole to get out of the, of, the, of the vow, and you say, well, no, but God allows for it. But you made a vow. And guess what? That vow that you made, where is the wedding vows in Scripture? Where, where are the rules exactly what words are supposed to be said when you get married? Where, where is the, like, when you get married, say these words. No, what we, what we do have, what we do have is let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Don't add any uh, uh, further promises. I take this person to be my wife. I take this person to be my husband. The end. Don't add more to it. Now I think, I, and, and, and the only reason I say that is I think then we, we, we come up with, okay, now if you do believe the Bible has an exemption, if you do believe the Bible has an exemption for divorce, well, then you would be more able to use that exemption because you didn't make the promise in the first place. I just think we either the vows mean something or they don't. It, it, that, that's what it comes down to. Either they mean something or they don't. And if they don't mean anything, then stop saying them. And if they do mean something, then you're bound by it. And biblically, it sounds like when you make a vow, you're bound by it. I mean, what do you, what do, you do with that? Now, of course, we already break the vows a hundred way. It's, it's always funny. It's always funny that we make vows. We break, we, we break the vows 50 different ways, and that's okay. Now, if you break the vow in one specific way, like, like it's always funny. Like, you can, break, you can break the vow in this way, this way, this way, and this way, and it's no big deal. Nobody gets upset. You break the vow in this way, and they're like, I got grounds for divorce. I got, well, they already broke all the, they're, they're broken the vow 50 different ways. How come you, I mean, What's, what's even the point anymore? 
but no, no, no. It's like the vowels are good until they break it in this one specific way. And now, 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 now I get out of it. Now I get out of it. Now I'm done. You've already broken the vowel 50 other ways. So what's the difference about one more? I mean, if you really think about it logically, so I, I think the traditional vowels contribute to the problem. So here's what happened. Here's, here's a young girl. She's like, okay, she's a Christian teenager. She grows up in the church and she's told basically God's got one person out there for you and you got to find God's will for you. You got to find God's will for you. And she, she goes through, maybe she's in a church where like you listen to God and you pray to God about it. And he's going to tell you, he's going to give you the feelings. And it's kind of this supernatural thing. And she's like, this is it. This, this is God's will, mom. I know God has confirmed this to me. That's the person I'm supposed to marry. It is God's will. And she gets married. And then her husband starts raping her, abusing her and beating her children. Wait, 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 wait. I, I told everyone that's God's will. Wait, this is this is the person God told me to marry. I mean, what can I do? Can I say anything? Can I do anything? You feel like you're in a prison. It's far different if she approaches it like, hey, I'm marrying within God's will because they claim to be a believer. I claim to be a believer. I don't see any red flags. I don't need to see any red signs. I know sin is going to occur. And based off everything, I think this is who I should marry. I don't feel like you have the same psychological trap. And I think you can be more likely to go, wait, something has gone horribly wrong here. And what's wrong is, well, you, you is, well, sin is what's wrong. And I think it's, it's also if that young girl stands before everyone and makes some dramatic vow that I'm going to obey you and I'm never going to depart from you and I'm going to love and cherish you no matter what, good times, bad times, that can create a very, again, psychological trap if the person is being abused, if you never made such vow, I'm not saying the Bible doesn't still give us directions because it does, but you did not make a vow without offering any exceptions. You said yes and no, that's it. That's all you said. Well, then I don't think you have the added bondage to the situation. You still have the scriptures and I'm by no means throwing out the scriptures. What I'm trying to do is trying to throw out this over spiritualizing the concept of God's will and who you marry and then creating extra vows and promises that the Bible does not say you have to make when you make your wedding vows. In fact, the Bible seems to indicate just let your yes be yes and your no be no and don't make any more extra promises because that's typically trouble comes from it. Why? Because you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. Now, I'm not going to say that's going to fix it all. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that these are issues that are never talked about when we talk about abuse, women being abused in, in, in uh, Christian marriages inside the church. We, we, we don't even address these. I'm trying to go back to the very beginning before the marriage ever is, is the wedding vows are complete. Before the wedding ceremony is even done, I'm trying to deal with issues getting there. Now, what we'll do is we'll move into now. Now you're married. Now you're married. All right. Well, there's an issue that comes up. All right. That shows up. And in, 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 in these are these are some two things we're going to look at and they're going to be uncomfortable. One. All right. The sexual relationship within marriage. Because there is some Christians who teach basically the woman can't say no. She has no power over her body. She can't say no. So she. Well, in this case, this woman is being raped and she says she she just she didn't think she could say no. 
All right. Well, there's there's some bad situations to develop there. And that, that derives from some teaching in First Corinthians. We're going to have to look at that. And then we're going to have to talk about submission. What does submission look like? Why is it when we talk about submission, we always ignore the passage about being submitted to one another? Why does that always get left out of the discussion? Why? I've got my Bible here. I'll just show you what I mean here. All right, if you look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. There's mutual submission. What does that look like? What does that mean? And then the next verse is, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. Everyone forgets 21. Hey, wives, submit. Well, wait a minute. 21 says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. So first of all, we got to understand the, the, the mutual submission then flowing from that is the wife submitting to her husband. And what does that look like? What does that mean? Does that mean you stay and get beat? I think most would say it doesn't. But many churches, when, when the abuse starts, I mean, we see a horrible story. So all these horrible stories where the woman is basically told, you have to stay. And again, I don't, I don't understand why these churches... It, it, it shouldn't even come down to a discussion about divorce. The thing should be, what can we do to protect the woman? If we can remove the woman from the situation, and, and most of these churches where these horrible things happen, they have budgets of millions of dollars. They could put the woman up and take care of her for probably six months without even hurting the church's budget. They could probably pay for rent, uh, a, a super nice hotel, something, and provide everything she needs probably for three to six months without even hurting the church. It's just amazing. These, it's the churches that have all the money who are on the cases don't, won't do anything. And in MacArthur Church's case, Eileen Gray, she gets excommunicated. I mean, what in the world is that? Because she wouldn't go back to her abusive husband who ends up going to prison. It's proven that she, he was abusive. And then they still won't remove the excommunication. Sometimes it's the big churches who could say, okay, all right, whoa, 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 wait, what's going on? Okay, immediately, stop. No, you get the kids, boom, we're going to put you up, okay? We're going we're gonna to talk, we're going to bring in the husband. Immediately, he's going to stay away from you, and we're going to start working through this. And then, obviously, uh, contact authorities, you know, all the legal, you got to follow all of the legal rules, but there should be immediate protection. That has nothing to do with divorce and has nothing to do with submission. That's just called protecting the victim. And you say, well, well, you don't know for sure who the victim is. Well, then do this. You separate them, making sure everyone's, uh, their physical needs, financial needs are met. And then you can give the opportunity to try to figure out what's going on so that hopefully you can bring healing, restoration, forgiveness, and you can fix the situation. There you go. So I believe the traditional vows got to have to go. I believe. I believe they should just be thrown in the trash and done away with. Done away with. I think it leads to more problems. They lead to problems if anybody takes the vows seriously. It should be when, like if we take the vows seriously, when someone becomes a member of your church, you're like, okay, I have to ask you, when you got married, what wedding vows did you make? Because you made those vows before God. And those vows are still binding. 
<laughs> Nobody cares. Oh, until, until, until someone commits certain sins and then all of a sudden, now the wedding vows matter. Now the wedding vows matter. Now they matter because one sin was committed. All the other failures, nobody cares, but, but the one. And then, uh, so it's like, it's like, it's so weird. Like the vows don't matter. Then they do matter. But then there's, but I made the vow, but wait a minute, there was an exemption clause. So now I don't have to follow the vow. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. I did make a vow that I, I would be married until death do, I, do us part. But wait a minute, wait a minute. They they promised to love and cherish and and all of that. Wait, they I, they didn't do that. They, they, they were unfaithful. So now I'm, I'm out of my vow. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. They, if you go with that idea, you're, you were out of your vow probably five minutes after marriage because they probably didn't love you the way they were supposed to love you according to the vow they made. I mean, if you think about it, if you get out of a vow simply because someone breaks the vow, well, then in marriage, everyone's broken the vow a hundred ways, even before you get to the big sins. So then the vows are meaningless anyway. Like, how do we not? It's just, it just seems like it's just symbolism. It's just tradition. And nobody ever raises a hand and go, wait a minute. I think this creates, this creates a million problems. We can eliminate all of these problems by just saying, let's do this. Here's the traditional wedding vow. Let's just do that. Let's just let's just get rid of it. Let's just get rid of it. And that sounds like you're liberal. No. It's not because I'm liberal, it's because I'm taking the vow seriously. It's the opposite of being liberal. It's like that's a vow before God. I don't want to end up like Jephthah and end up having to offer up my daughter because I made a vow. All right. I told you this is an unorthodox approach. I don't know if people are going to understand my approach here, but we are we are taking this subject and going way way. We're going back to the early stages of all of this. We're we're not even getting to the actual abuse yet. We're not even getting to we're we're trying to just look at so many things about how I I I guess what I'm trying to do. It's it's kind of what what Christians should have done when purity cancel purity culture started running wild is we should have stopped and started asking some deep questions and nobody did and then years later everybody's like purity culture literally destroyed my life and and then many in the church was like man what were we thinking so I'm just trying to get us to rethink so many of the issues before we ever get to the actual marriage and then there's the abuse before we get to that. I'm not saying it eliminates this because the abuse arises out of sinful human beings. There is, uh, it, it's going to show up in some way, shape, or form, and it's horrible. We, we got to know how to handle it. I'm just saying that there's other issues that I think creates a psychological prison where the person being abused sometimes like, I, don't, I can't do anything. I can't do anything because I made a promise or because um, I, I'm, God told me that's who I'm supposed to marry. If we can break a little bit of that bondage, then maybe then people won't be so bound to sit there and, I don't know, listen to their kids scream in pain as they're being abused or tolerate being raped hours after you give childbirth. And I'm not saying Grace Community Church specifically told that, that, that teaching, but clearly when the abuse occurs, it sounds like those in the church was more worried about covering it up than they were about exposing it or helping with it. And that's problematic. All right, email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com.
We'll see if this leads to more (laughs) conversation. It should. But to the listener who brought up the wedding vows, thank you. Because yesterday they were like, you know, I, 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 I don't like, I can't remember their exact words. I, I want to throw out the traditional vows or I'm, you know, I don't have, I don't like the traditional, well, I don't remember their words. And I was, and I basically responded with, absolutely. I, I think they should just completely be thrown out. And um, like, I'm in complete agreement with that. And I think people, probably other people who read it was like, wait, what, what? You're crazy. No, I'm not crazy. Because either there's either you make a vow with no exception no exemption. You're bound by it because you made it to God. You can't come along and go, but, 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 here's the exemption clause, but, but I get out of it. No, you made the vow to God. <laughs> you did it, that. And you say, but I didn't mean it. Well, the whole thing about Matthew 5 and these other things is the Bible seems to indicate no matter how foolishly or how flippantly you made it, you're bound by it. That creates major theological and doctrinal and practical implications for the life of a believer who made those vows. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Can't wait to get feedback on this. God bless.